0: hello everybody it's Patricia and welcome back to another episode of tea is for Tangent the side series to my main channel well my main series is <laughs> I mean, for alien and uh guess what boys we're back on that alien bullshit and I know that all of you guys are just living for it. So I'm really excited because I'm doing the uh, Flatwoods monster this week for the main series and uh, I don't know. I love the 1950s. I love the whole 1950s kind of UFO world. I kind of, I love the whole romanticization of that entire era. For all intents and purposes, it was probably fucking awful, like in reality. But, you know, I just, I really love how... History gets to have this beautiful lens kind of put on it and so as I sit here, I'm drinking out of my 1954 like bubblegum pink Noritake Stratford teacup and talking about 1952 UFOs because it was kind of a big fucking year for the subculture. and that's what i'm going to be telling you about today because of course the flatwoods monster story heralds from the year 1952 but it also just happened to be a really interesting year socio-politically as well as um you know as well as the other fuckery that was going on and also just quickly if my brand of crazy is the same brand of your crazy make sure that you press the subscribe button follow me on all my social media And also, if you have a chance now or after the podcast's finished, chuck a comment down below. It doesn't do anything for the logarithm, but it does wonders for my ego, darlings. 1952 is such an interesting year, not just only um, in regards of history for things such as ufology or cryptids but in general world history as well because when we actually look at what was going on in 1952, America is like dead smack bang involved in the Korean War. We're also in a Cold War with the Soviets and this is kind of a time in history where we're on the precipice of world powers kind of putting their feelers out and figuring out where they actually stand in this new world that's post-World War II. You know, we we have experienced this ourselves in a post-9-11 world that we know what it's like, that there are still parts which we haven't yet figured out yet. And I feel like with that kind of reference, we can apply that and have some kind of understanding of how it must have felt in global politics at this time when we've got new kind of major players arriving, you know, because basically around this time, like China fell to the communists. So China is now a newly communist country. We've obviously got the Soviets, which are like, you know, a communist country. We've had the Tito Stalin split. So, you know, that's all going on in Yugoslavia. It's all really kind of a really kind of tense time in world politics. As we are an educational comedy program, I'd just like to take a moment to kind of explain the Korean War and the reasons why the Americans got involved in the Korean War a little bit more because I feel like when we have a little bit of context, like a historical context to the stories that we explore from a cryptozoology perspective or a UFO perspective, it kind of it kind of makes you think outside the box of it just being like a silly story that you shouldn't believe. And I feel like for me personally, it gives me pause for thought and thinks maybe there is something to this, which we should have more of a vested interest in exploring. So I'm going to read directly from Wikipedia, the factors in the US intervention in the Korean war. Initially, there was some hesitance by the US government to get involved in this war. Considerations about Japan had played a part in the ultimate decision to engage on behalf of South Korea. Especially after the fall of China to the communists, US experts on East Asia saw Japan as the critical counterweight to the Soviet Union and China in the region. While there was no US policy dealing with South Korea directly as a national interest, its proximity to Japan increased the importance of South Korea. The recognition that the security of Japan required a non-hostile Korea led directly to President Truman's decision to intervene. The essential point is that the American response to the North Korea attack stemmed from considerations of U.S. policy towards Japan. Another major consideration was the possible Soviet reaction in the event that the U.S. intervened. The Truman administration was fearful that a war in Korea was a diversionary assault that would escalate to a general war in Europe once the United States committed in Korea. At the same time, there was no suggestion from anyone that the United Nations or the United States would back away from the conflict. Yugoslavia, a possible Soviet target because of the Tito-Stalin split, was vital to the defence of Italy and Greece, and the country was the first on the list of the National Security Council's post-North Korea invasion list of chief danger spots. Truman believed if aggression went unchecked, a chain reaction would be initiated that would marginalise the UN and encourage communist aggression elsewhere. The UN Security Council approved the use of force to help the South Koreans, and the US immediately began using air and naval forces that were in the area to that end. The Truman administration still refrained from committing troops on the ground because of some advisers' belief that the North Koreans could be stopped by air and naval power alone. The Truman administration was still uncertain if the attack was a ploy by the Soviet Union or just a test of US resolve. The decision to commit ground troops became viable when communication was received on the 27th of June, indicating the Soviet Union would not move against the US forces in Korea. The Truman administration now believed it could intervene in Korea without undermining its commitments elsewhere. So you can pick up from that that even on the world stage, there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of things which people didn't know, like... Every action has a reaction, but they weren't sure what kind of reaction it was going to garner. And so this kind of fear of the unknown is basically stemming from the top kind of echelons of government all the way down through to the common man. And so it's kind of easy to see how like with this mindset, people may be more inclined to see things or to like believe they see things just because we've got this, this kind of global paranoia at the moment post-World War II. As this is the question that I'm asking myself, though, like just because people were asked to start looking for strange stuff, I don't know if the government really like believed or understood to what extent people were going to start seeing fucking strange stuff when they were asked to look for strange stuff. And I think that that is the shock <laughs> that um, kind of – is the real takeaway from this time. Like the government was telling people to look to the skies and maybe that was something which they've never actually been told to do before and so we may not have ever have had this UFO flap. We may not have ever been this vigilant or have been so um, observant of our surroundings had it not been for, you know, a communist threat because um, what I'm about to tell you next will kind of explain that a bit more. So, Americans during this time lived under this constant kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, a mushroom cloud of a threat of a Soviet nuclear attack. Like, they had seen only a sh- short few years ago just how devastating, like, nuclear warfare can be from what happened in Hiroshima in Japan. The US government were acutely aware that radio networks around the country were insufficient and that there were defense gaps. That existed underneath the five thousand feet range, so to combat this, they had recruited almost two hundred thousand severe volunteer sky watchers, which was called the ground observers corps and this worked with the Air Force to monitor skies over the United States and to fill in those low level gaps. Yet, even though there were two hundred thousand of them, there was still a need for an additional three hundred thousand or more volunteers to help in this so This was something which was just kind of common, like everyone was encouraged to be looking at the sky and ready to report anything strange that they'd seen. What the government was expecting people to report was Soviet bombers. I don't think what they were expecting people to start seeing was flying saucers. And this is something which makes me wonder, you know, these things have probably always been there and they're probably always going to be there, but... We're just not looking for them anymore. Like, I wonder what would happen if something like this happened now, you know, where we were told, you know, go outside and look at the sky every night. Like everyone's got to do their civil duty and go outside and look at the sky. Like, would we start seeing strange things again? Would there be a UFO flap of 2021 because we've been told to observe, whereas before we've never been told to observe? Because there was no reason to. Then the Air Force is in this weird predicament where they're just like, we're getting all these fucking strange reports of strange aerial phenomena and it's not really, this is not really, this is separate to the war effort, so maybe we need to like create a different bureau that we can pass those reports off to you because obviously this is significant but we're not sure if it's of national security significant but if there's like hundreds of ufo reports it may actually clog the you know communication channels when there is an actual fucking you know russian bomber which is probably our more immediate threat so a lot of people may actually recognize this kind of organization that was dedicated to dealing with these UFO reports. I'm doing air quotes. You can't see that because despite your insistent requests, I haven't decided to film my podcast yet. So a lot of you may be more familiar with this investigative body by its kind of colloquial name that we should all know now by, which is Project Blue Book. But, you know, before it had existed in various different incarnations. So it had been uh, called Project Sign in 1947 then Project Grudge in 1949, and that was in operation until 1951. And then in late 1951, Project Grudge was renamed Project Blue Book. So that kind of happened after the 1952 summer UFO flap. So 1952 was the greatest year for UFO um, reporting, I guess. So Project Blue Book was located out of um, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, which is actually right next to West Virginia, (laughs) which is where a lot of these fucking crazy stories come from, which is so strange, these West Virginians, man. So the main series episode, which is going to be out on Wednesday, is focusing on a particular day in September, September the 12th, which is quite significant when it comes to UFO law and also UFO flap reporting, because whilst the majority of UFO reports were made in the summer of 1952, and that's when I'm going to be talking about today, because I'm going to be going over when aliens buzzed Washington, D.C., but the Flatwoods Monster event occurred on the 12th of September, and that is actually a very significant day in September when it comes to UFO reporting. So hopefully you can check out that episode when it comes out on Wednesday. I hope you're looking forward to it. Okay. So at 1140 on Saturday, the 19th of July, 1952, Edward Nugent, an air traffic controller at the Washington National Airport, which by the way, is now called the Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport, spotted seven objects on his radar screen. The objects were located 24 kilometers or 15 miles southwest of the city. No known aircraft were in the area and the objects weren't following any established flight paths. So he called over his superior, Harry Barnes, and was kind of like, "Mm, what what is this, do you think? And so he was a senior air traffic controller at the airport. And as he was watching... The objects on the radar scope. He immediately knew that this was a very strange situation and that the movements were completely radical compared to those of ordinary aircraft. So Harry then decided to have two other controllers check Nugent's radar just in case there was like some kind of anomaly with it or some kind of problem that they hadn't picked up on, but they reported that both of them found it normally. Then Harry, the supervisor, called National Airport's radio-equipped control tower and there were two controllers there called Howard Coughlin and Joe Zacco and they said that they also had the unidentified blips on their radar screen and they saw a hovering bright light in the sky which departed at incredible speed. Once again, these air quotes because that term, incredible speed, tends to come up a lot in these kind of stories from this era. At this point, other objects appeared in all sectors of the radioscope. And when they were moving over the White House and the United States Capitol, that's when Barnes decided to call the Andrews Air Force Base, which was located 10 miles from the National Airport. Although Andrews Air Force Base reported that they had no unusual objects on their radar, an airman soon called the base to tell them that he'd seen a strange object and William Brady, who was in the tower, then saw an object which appeared to look like an orange ball of fire tailing a tail that was unlike anything that he'd ever seen before. As Brady tried to alert the other personnel on the tower, the strange object took off at an unbelievable speed. While all this is going on, a pilot, um, S.C. Pierman, who was a Capital Airlines pilot, was waiting in a DC-4 to get permission to take off. He thought that he saw like a meteor in the sky. Um, yeah, it was the year of the meteor, 1952. <laughs> um, he was told by the traffic control tower that there were unknown objects closing in on his position whilst he was in flight. He observed SIPs objects, which were white, tailless, and moving really fast over a 15-minute period. He was in radio contact with Barnes during this sighting, and Barnes, which is Harry Barnes, who's the air traffic controller, supervisor at Washington National Airport. Barnes later said that each sighting coincided with a pip that we could see near his plane. So they were talking to somebody and telling them that they could see these. They were getting radar confirmation of visuals that this pilot was having. Whilst this was all kicking off at the Washington National Airport, at Andrews Air Force Base, the control tower personnel were tracking on radar what some thought to be unknown objects, but what other people just thought Uh, were simply stars and meteors and I don't know enough about radar to know like is that even possible like if you've ever had any kind of experience or if you've looked into how radar works like is it possible to detect the star on on a radar screen like how would that work like I don't know how it works properly so I don't know is that something which is even like possible Staff Sergeant um, Charles Davenport observed an orange-red light to the south. The light would appear to stand still and then make abrupt changes in direction and altitude. That happened several times. At one point, both centres at the National Airport and the radar at Andrews Air Force Base were tracking an object hovering over a radio beacon. The object vanished in all three radar centres at the same time. So around 3 o'clock, two jet fighters had been decided to be scrambled from the Newcastle Air Force Base in Delaware, but just before they arrived, all of the objects vanished from the radar at National Airport, so there was nothing to be seen. The jets ran low on fuel and returned back to base. When the jets were gone, the objects returned, which convinced the operators that they too were able to be monitoring the radio traffic and they were responding to the actions that they were making, all of the objects and lights disappeared by 5.30am the next day. So funnily enough, Edward Ruppelt, who was the supervisor of the Air Force's Project Blue Book and its investigations into UFOs, was actually in Washington that weekend. But he didn't find out about this anomalous radar activity until Monday morning when he read it in a newspaper. He then spoke with intelligence officers at the Pentagon and requested a staff car so that he could travel around to investigate the sightings, but that was refused because only generals and senior colonels were able to use staff cars. So he was told that he could rent a cab if he really wanted to, but at that point he was just like, nah, fuck this, and, you know, flew back to Wright-Patterson in Dayton, Ohio. Concerned by what he had read, he then asked to speak to the Air Force's radar specialist, Captain Roy James, and it was Roy James who was of the opinion that potentially the unknown radar targets could have been caused by unusual weather conditions. But you know, in those initial reports, there wasn't any kind of mention of any strange weather. There's nothing which would give us the impression that there was an out-of-the-ordinary weather event going on whilst this was happening. So then, the very next weekend, on July 26, at about 8 o'clock at night, a pilot and a stewardess on a national airline's flight into Washington observed lights above their plane. Within minutes, both radar centres at the National Airport and also at Andrews Air Force Base were also tracking unknown objects. It was at that point that the Master Sergeant Charles E. Cumming visually observed objects at Andrews and said that these lights did not have the characteristics of shooting stars and there was no trails. They traveled faster than any shooting star that he had ever seen. Ruppel obviously felt that things wasn't entirely done in Washington because this weekend there also happened to be Albert M. Chop, who was a press spokesman for Project Blue Book. At the national airport, and due to safety concerns and security concerns, he had told reporters that they weren't able to take pictures of the radar screens. By 9:30, the radar centre was detecting unknown objects in every sectors, and the thing was is that sometimes they were travelling really slowly, or travelling in a reverse direction, and that other times they were travelling at speeds calculated at 7,000 miles per hour. That's 11,250 kilometres. Then once again, aircraft were scrambled from the Newcastle Air Force Base in Delaware. The flight leader, Captain John Hugo maneuvered towards where the reported radar blips were, but saw nothing despite many attempts. However, Lieutenant William Patterson claimed that he did see four white glows and he chased them. He told investigators and people in the radar control tower that he tried to make contact with the bogies below 1000 feet. He said that he had reached maximum speed, but stopped chasing them because he felt like there was no way he was going to be able to catch them. This is a funny part of the story. It made me giggle a little bit because apparently when ground control asked Patterson If he was seeing anything, he replied to them at one stage, I see them now and they're all around me. What should I do? And there was just like radio silence because no one knew what to tell him to do. Based on the expert opinion of Captain James Roy, that it could have been weather conditions that were causing the anomalous radar targets. There was obviously investigation into this being a potential cause for the radar anomalies. And by this stage, we had other kind of stakeholders becoming involved. So there was a man called Lieutenant John Holcomb, and he was a United States Navy radar specialist who had arrived at the airport to offer support. And he'd received a call from the Washington National Weather Service that told him that whilst there was a slight temperature inversion present over the city, that it wouldn't have been anything that was nearly as strong as to explain that like the good solid kind of objects that they were picking up on their radar scopes. When he relayed that information to the radar room, everybody was convinced that the blips that the radar scopes were picking up were in actual fact solid metallic objects. They were confident in this because at the same time, there were weather targets on the scope too. And being highly trained professionals, they were able to determine what was a weather target and what was something strange. Once again, like the last weekend, there were various reports of commercial aircraft seeing things in the sky, and by sunrise, everything had stopped. So once again, these stories were just all over the newspapers, and it led Harry Truman himself to have his Air Force aide, call Ruppel, who you could remember is the supervisor of Project Blue Book, and he asked him for an explanation for these sightings and the unknown radar returns. And so Truman listened into the phone conversation, but he didn't ask any questions himself. And the funny thing was is that he gave an explanation for the sightings being caused by a temperature inversion, um, which, you know, in layman's terms is a layer of warm air. Covering a cool layer of air closer to the ground, and so what this does is it gives off face like false radar signals and false returns. But the strangest thing was is that there hadn't been any formal investigation conducted, and also at that stage he hadn't individually interviewed any of the witnesses at the National airport or at Andrews Air Force Base. So yeah, that's to be expected because obviously these events would have and should have caused some kind of concern for the White House and also for the newly formed CIA. For those of you who may not be aware, the Central Intelligence Agency is the CIA and it was formed by Harry Truman in 1947 to serve as a civilian foreign intelligence service. So whereas the FBI, which is the Federal Bureau of Investigation, is a domestic security service, the CIA has no law enforcement function in continental United States, and it's mainly focused on overseas intelligence gathering and only has limited domestic intelligence collection abilities. So the fact that it is quite concerned with whatever these objects are, you know, they think that it's coming from somewhere else. They're not necessarily thinking that it's from outer space, but they would have security concerns about the implications of you know, if these things aren't a tangible object, what actually are they, you know, and what is their purpose and how could this compromise national security? And it was that concern with this UFO situation that would eventually lead to the creation of the Robertson panel in January of 1953 after this ridiculous UFO flap that we had in 1952. So a few days after the second sighting there was a press conference held at the Pentagon. And basically, the explanation for the visual sightings over Washington were explained as misidentified aerial phenomena, such as stars or meteorites. The unknown radar targets could easily be explained by temperature inversion again, which was present in the air over Washington on both nights the radar reports were returned. In addition, and in my opinion, what's the most interesting part of this press conference that I could pick up on was the Air Force Major General John Sanford, who was running the press conference, stated that because the unknown radar contacts were not caused by solid material objects, they therefore pose no threat to national security. And when he was asked by reporters if the Air Force had recorded similar UFO radar contacts prior to the Washington incident, He said that there had been hundreds of such contacts where the Air Force fighter interceptions had taken place, but stated that they were all fruitless. Okay, so now I'm going to play you a piece of audio that actually comes from the press conference that John Sanford had actually held, and I just want you to listen to the words that he's saying and... Think to yourself for a second, like how could anybody possibly turn around and say to somebody who wants to entertain the possibility of UFOs or extraterrestrial life, like how can anyone say that just by the virtue of doing that you're crazy when we actually have matters of public record stating what this gentleman is just about to say?
1: We have received and analysed between one and 2,000 reports that have come to us from all kinds of sources. Of this great mass of reports, we have been able adequately to explain the great bulk of them, explain them to our own satisfaction. However, there have been a certain percentage of this volume of reports that have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things. It is this group of observations that we now are attempting to resolve. We have, as of date, come to only one firm conclusion with respect to this remaining percentage, and that is that it does not contain any pattern of purpose or of consistency that we can relate to any conceivable threat to the United States.
0: I just love that little line. Like, that just fucking fires up the Fox Mulder in me because when you hear about people on the record, like important people saying shit like this on the record. All it does is it further shows me that we can't actually dismiss people's experiences, dismiss people's stories, because just because our level of understanding and our understanding of science isn't at a point where we can make tangible kind of sense of what we're seeing, it doesn't mean that it's not happening and it's not existing. And then people argue about the fact that when, you know, digital filters were put on to radar systems in the late 60s, that, you know, UFO sightings kind of dropped off. But who's to say that once... I don't know. That's like, that's leaning into an overarching kind of global conspiracy where they're like, we don't want people that aren't in the need to know kind of category being able to see this. So let's put some limiters on what they can actually see when it comes to using radar. So I don't believe that it was just weather that these people were experiencing or seeing um, you know, maybe it was, I don't know, like the white balls of light could have been ball lightning. We hear ball lightning get thrown around a lot, but has anyone ever fucking really like seen it kind of move intelligently? Like a lot of the stories about ball lightning that I've read is that it's very fleeting. And yeah, there have been instances where I've heard of it, uh, like aircraft being struck by lightning. And there's been kind of like lightning move through the cabin. Obviously there's St. Elmo's fire as well, but people who fly, they know what that looks like. They've seen and experienced that multiple times. So just like how I always feel like it's stupid to say to an outdoorsman that the Bigfoot he thinks he saw was actually an owl. I feel like it's the exact same thing to turn around and say to you know, a professional airman that you can't tell the difference between a cloud and a UFO or you can't tell the difference between a star and an object that you think is closing in on your position. Regardless of whatever these things were, I'm also of the mindset that the investigation into them by the government, by the CIA and by the Air Force kind of all independently doesn't prove an existence of UFOs or extraterrestrials because they had like real world issues with what these things could be because in their mind, they're thinking that it actually could have been an enemy nation deliberately flooding the US with false UFO reports to cause mass panic and allow them to, you know, launch a sneak attack. And, you know, that's something which I think is smart to keep in the back of your mind when you start investigating and looking into these stories because that is the backdrop that the majority of these stories are painted on the Cold War era and it was one of the findings of the Robertson panel which I've mentioned before that both the Air Force and Project Blue Book should take steps to strip the unidentified flying objects phenomena of its special status that it's been given and enjoying and take away the aura of mystery that it's unfortunately acquired because they wanted to try and kind of desensationalize anything that was going on because of the fact that it was. Drawing people's attention to something when really it's just a distraction for something else, which may or may not be correct. I'm not sure. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that little summary. Oh my god, these these tangents are getting longer and longer. Soon you know, it's just gonna be an hour and a half too. But I need to give you all the information, people. I need to. I have to. Just quickly as well. I don't know if this is a Mandela effect or not. But do you guys remember like a Time magazine? cover with kind of a picture of capitol hill and ufos like with it i don't know is this a mandela effect that people know about because i tried looking for it and i can't find it i cannot wait to hear what you guys think about this story i can't wait to hear if you think that ufos really did buzz the white house In July 1952 and I hope that this really sets a cool stage for you to really immerse yourself into the flatwoods monster story that I'm gonna tell you on Wednesday (sighs) what else am I gonna say time's running out I always like to put this time pressure on myself and I know like time's a construct and there actually isn't any time pressure but you know okay now I'm waffling now I'm waffling alright okay alright I love you goodbye subscribe comment like review rate sacrifice your firstborn to a leprechaun um did i forget anything i don't know all right i'm out okay bye bye